Här är er ett tillbud till dig som hör på podcasten, men som ända inte abonnerar på Morgonbladet. Du kan nog få avisa till 25 % rabatt på nettopapper i tre månader för kun krone 395. Du beställer via sända en SMS med kodord morgon mellanrum 4, alltså morgon 4 till 2360. Tillbudet gäller nya abonnenter i Norge och varar till 4 mars 2016. Det är er allt och nu ska du få det du kommit för, nämligen Morgonbladets podcast. Och då kan de ha så många små bakerier som de kan spre på större områder för att det ska vara färre människor som rätt rätt står i brödkö. Och då i så fall, om det blir bomba, så blir det färre som stryker med. Sten Inge Jørgensen har besökt närområdan till Syria. De är er stedene alle i norsk politik snakker om for att se hvordan i all verden man går frem om man ska hjälp folk där. Så har vi mött en av de mest omtalte science fiction författarna de sista par åren en Lecky. I know uh, at least when I was younger I would hear people say oh if women ran the world everything would be so peaceful and it would be so much better and I'm like no I don't really think so. Hur hamnar mitt i science fiction genrens störste litterära slagsmål efter att ha beskrivit ett galaktisk imperium som inte vet skillnaden på han och henne. I tillägg ett surmaga uppgör med de nya fjällvetreglerna från Morbladets korrekturavdelning. Vi sicke vi sicke språkvitare ska kunna tala på fjällsvägarna ska fjällen då själv snacka. Jag heter Askil Matrosare. Det här är er Morbladets podcast. Vi driver och och flytte här i i Morbladet så vårt kära studio är er under nedrigging akkurat nu. Vi sitter här egentligen bara i i resten av det. Uh, men likväl så, så karvar vi oss fast i lite stund till att hämma Stenning Jörgensen journalist här i i Morgonbladet. Hej hej. God dag, god dag. Du är er akkurat tillbaka från de de sagnomsuste närområdan eh uh, vi ska hjälpa flyktingarna som som flykter från krigen i i Syrien. Nej, bestämt så har du besökt gränsposten till Syrien vid den turkiska byen Kilis. Vad är er det egentligen som som mötte där? Det er jo en stengt grense da, som er, er ganske dramatisk, fordi det er jo da opp mot 40 000 som står på andre siden av grensa og ikke da kommer over til Tyrkia. Så, men det Tyrkia sier jo at nu er det fullt. De har tatt imot 2,7 millioner syrere, så, hvorav 10 prosent bare er leira faktisk. Men, men hvordan ser du ut helt konkret når du kommer til den her grensa? Altså, hvordan, hvordan slusesystemet fungerer det? Hvor er det folk egentlig bosettes hvis de de väntar på utsidan eller har kommit sig igenom. På den syriska sidogränsen så är er det då flera lejra som är er fulla allerede. För det har ju länge varit Syrias politik och hjälpa de i närområdena i Syria. Så där är er det flera lejra men nu har det ju kommit då tiotusener som inte får plats där. Och så är er det då två stora lejra rätt över på turkisk sida men de är er också helt fulla. Så, men de som kommer over nu, det er jo da enten syke, altså de får jo passere, de ambulansene går jo, og det er da Tyrkia har bygd opp et sykehus som hjelper dem på sin side av grensen. De andre er da kommer menneskesmuglere, og de går jo ikke akkurat over den posten. Nej, for altså, går det et gjære her, eller er det, hvordan er grensen egentlig satt opp? Eller ja, det er jo grense, og det er jo den zone der, og det er jo piggtråd og sånn. Mm-hmm. Så den er jo fysisk uh, sperret. Og vi møtte jo folk som har blitt hjelpet over av menneskesmuglere og blitt skrapet på piggtråden og sånn. For de hjelper dem helt konkret over gjæren, altså over... Over eller under, eller ja. ja, ja. 
altså, den, den byen her som ligger utenfor, den er liksom, Kilis da, som ligger ved grenseposten, den, den har jo nå blitt uh, nominert til, eller en av nominerte til den Nobels fredspris. Uh, hva er det som ligger bak den, den nominasjonen der egentlig? Vi kan ta tallene til å begynne med da, så er det, byen har egentlig 90 000 innbyggere, og så er det nå 125 000 syriske flyktninger der, altså ja. langt flere enn de som opprinnelig bor der. Uh, så nå har det jo vært i flere år, Og det har jo gått forbløffende bra, altså de har jo, alle barna er jo ikke på skole og sånn, men de fleste, og speciellt bland de aller yngste, så har de väldigt bra inrullering. Så de har taklet det eh, veldig bra. Så er det klart at uh, du vil jo ikke finne Pegida-demonstranter uh, på grensa der, det er jo mer likkultur, og det har jo alltid haft et forbindelse over grensa. Altså Gaziantep, som ligger like nord for Kilis, er jo en storby med en og en halv million, de har jo også masse folk masse syrere. Ja. Uh, Aleppo ligger jo rett sør, og det har jo vært to litt sånne tvillingbyer med mye kontakt gjennom tidene. Ja, så, så her har du ikke den store kulturelle barrieren som, som følger med innvandringen andre steder. Det er jo interessant du skriver litt om hvordan enkelte snakker om det, sammenligner det med, med deler av av islamsk historie egentlig. Hva var det akkurat? Det var da uh, Gaziantep, da, som er den storbyen litt lenger nord, de det var lite oklart om de var nominerade till fredsprisen eller om de nominerade sig själv men i hvert fall så sa ordföranden på pressekonferensen att vi har nå rollen som asnar för våra syriska bröder och det är er då det man kallade då borgarna av Medina sin rolle då Mohammed och hans följe tog skuld där under då de måste flykte från Mekka. Mm. Men så, så, så du någon tegn till någon konflikt for det er jo store, store mengder mennesker. Man skulle tro at selv om du, som du sier, det er ikke er naturligt å ha en pediga demonstration der, men, men er det noen friksjon akkurat der? Altså, det er jo i hvert fall misnøye blant tyrkere flest, men da har jeg ikke sett noen meningsmålinger for den byen spesifikt da. Men hvis du ser på landsnivå, så mener det klart flertall av tyrkerne at det er alt for mange syrere i landet. Og de er jo som sagt ikke redde for kulturkrasj, men det er da arbeidsmarkedet fordi uh, syrene de tar jo da jobber uh, helt i bunnen og jobber jo for veldig mye mindre så, og det er jo arbeidsledighet i Tyrkia og det er jo mange som føler at da, de blir utkonkurrert av flyktninger Ja, for det allerede bygges jo opp infrastruktur også rett på den siden av grensa blant annet for skole, men også for arbeid det er en del sånne fabrikker som du nevner en klasfabrikk blant annet hvilken type infrastruktur er det som, som bygges opp akkurat der? Nej, det som är er den hänvisningen att den klesfabriken det är er faktiskt i Killis hvor de ska prøve att sysselsätta flyktingar samtidigt som de ska få klær som de kan få sent tillbaka över gränsen. Men det är er väldigt liten skala. Jag tror att de jobbar med kanske 15 stycken där. Ja. Så, så det är er ikke en del av den normala arbets som regnes med i Tyrkias BNP. Nej, nej. Du, interessant det du sier liksom, om at mye av det arbeidet som foregår der handler om også å sende ting tilbake inn i Syria, og særlig nå etter at, at grensene er så godt som forsegla, så, så snakker man mer om å klare å sende ting inn i, I, I Syria, og du snakker blant annet om noen som brødovner. Hva er det som, som sker med den? Ja, det er jo ganske dramatisk, men i de siste ukene, så spesielt da etter at Russland engasjerte sig på sida til Assad, så har angrepene mot civile økt voldsomt, og du ser angrepene mot sykehus, medisinske institutioner og også bakerier uh, har tatt sig opp veldig. Hvorfor bakerier? Der samles det da masse folk ofte, ikke sant, står i brødkøer, 
Och så är er det också då sånt att hvis du kan bombe matförsörjningen till någon så skapar du ända fler flyktingar. Och det är er ju många som mener då att det är er det Ryssland håller på med egentligen, det är er också pröva och knäcka då Europa indirekt med att skapa nå ända fler flyktingar. Hur mycket av det är er liksom en konspirationsteori och hur mycket är er det, det som man faktiskt kan kan se på som en reell reell taktik egentligen? det är er ju en sån man hör så otroligt många teorier om 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 begrundelsen för alla aktörerna. Jag tror att det spelar någon roll vad man tänker om strategin. Altså, jag tror det som er, det du kan se si som är er faktum det er att från Ryssland engagerade sig så har angreppet på sjukhus, bakerier allt möjligt och sånt gått i taket i Nordsyria. Så jag tror det håller att se si att det är er väldigt sannsynligt att det er det Ryssland driver med. Och de gör det ju för att de ska hjälpa Assads styrker på papiret, ikke sant? Altså, de är er ju allierat med han. och så säger de att de slåss slåss mot IS. Det ser jo omtrent alle observatører at det ser det nesten ingenting til. Og om det da i andre enden er et mål å knekke EU enda mer og sånn, det får nå være så. Det kan man spekulere i. Men i hvert fall er det sånn at når da sånn som bakerier blir tatt da, som er så nødvendig for folk, så er det en hjelpeorganisasjon som besøkte da i Killis, som da har begynt å produsere sånne små bakerovner som har kapacitet på 500 kilo brød om dagen, som de ska få spredd över gränsen och då kan de ha så många små bakerier som de kan spre på större områden för att det ska vara färre människor som rätt står i brödkö och då i så fall hvis det blir bomba så blir det färre som stryker med så så konkret är er det. Ja, så praktiskt och så, så konkret. Du nämner ju då det som hvordan alt endrer sig når Russland tredde inn, men kunne du bare beskrive akkurat hvordan den forskjellige styrkene som, som det her området du besøkte egentlig er under press fra akkurat nu? Ja, hvis du står på grenseposten Kilis, og så ser du rett sør, så ser du på Aleppo som ligger 6 mil ned. Og da har du på høyre side, så har du da kurdiske styrker som nå er under angrep fra Tyrkia. Ja. Og på venstre side så har du IS, som jo er i krig med omtrent alle, Och så har du då i området rätt fram i den lomma fram till Aleppo så är er det frie syriske hern men de blir då pressade söderfra av Assad sina styrkor och ryssarna. Och Assad och ryssarna har nu också omringat Aleppo då som er en miljonby. Det är er ju en miljon igen men det är er väl över en halv miljon. Så det är er ju en väldigt dramatisk situation där akkurat nu. Ja, vad er tänker man är er mest rädd för att ska ske? Vad är er worst case scenario nu i den nästa par par veckorna Det var jo to prominente akadem- amerikanske akademikere som nettopp skrev i Washington Post at uh, det her er vår tids Srebrenica, altså, eller Sarajevo, det som sker nu Aleppo, omringes og kanskje ødelegges helt. Så, så alvorlig er det jo. Så man kan se for sig at egentlig hele den byen nesten utslettes, tenker du da? I hvert fall de delene som regjeringen ikke kontrollerer fra før. Mm. Det kan skje. Ja. Sten Inge Høgelsen, du får ha tusen takk for, for praten du. Takk for det. Den här uka så kom eh, den nya utgåvan av fjällvetterreglerna. Det är er egentligen små justeringar som man man har ändrat så att um, det är er inte så viktigt längre att uppsöka den visman som bor överst i, I dalen och spör han om hur man ska för sig i naturen så länge man uppsöker annan information och det är er lite mer fokus på att du ska för exempel kunna igenkänna vad farlig farlig terräng är. Er. 
Men så fick korrekturavdelningen här i Mönblad, vi har ju en, en hel etage som sitter här och läser igenom uh, avisa. Eh uh, vecka fick den här den här nya reglan i hände och bynt att skribble med med röd och nu ser vi här har reglerna spredd utover och det är er rött på varje linje nästan ser det ut som så vi inviterat hela hela korrekturavdelningen för att och rätt att diskutera vad det var som var så gärna med de här nya reglerna så hej Paul Uvåg hej hej vad är er det egentligen du du har reagerat på ja så det är er flera nivåer här då men uh, från det helt enkla sån sån att det är er inkonsekvent i tegnsättning och sånting det är er, det är er inte det som är er mest allvarligt men, uh, men uh, andra enkla ting som uh, som är er mer allvarligt är er ju att det står för exempel till posturen efter evne och förhåll Vi mener jo selvfølgelig evner, altså du kan ikke tilpasse turen etter beste evne og forhold, til at det står sånne ting som jeg rett og slett ikke helt forstår, altså ta trygge veivalg. Man kan jo diskutere da, om man skal gjøre valg eller man skal ta dem, men ok. Og så står det videre gjenkjent skredfarlig terreng og usikker is. Ja. Altså utrygg is hadde kanskje vært mer logisk da det høres ut som det er en egenskap ved isen at den er usikker. At den er litt usikker på sig selv? Ja, men jeg forstår, jeg forstår ikke hva det, hva, hva, hvor de vil. Altså skal man da gjenkjenne skredfarlig terreng og usikker is, da må man for det første vite hva skredfarlig terreng og usikker is er. Eller så kan man ikke gjenkjenne det. Og så... Hvis man skal dra det veldig langt da, noe som jeg har litt... Det er derfor du er jo lingvist, så det ligger vel i din, I din ånd, gjør det ikke det? Jo, så kan man jo tenke seg at hvis man skal først kunne gjenkjenne den utrygge isen, eller usikre isen, som det står her, så må man jo ut der den usikre isen er, og så må man jo kanskje gå på den da, eller vet du ikke? Vil du kaste hansken her, altså? Ja, ja men... Men altså, hvis ikke, hvis ikke språkvitere skal kunne tale på fellesveiene, skal fjellet da selv snakke. Da blir du snøskred, og det vil du ikke ha noe av. Det står til og med her. Men altså, du har altså da, hvis frustreringen har lyst til å få vasket deg med reglene, så kan du vel bare ta, ta kontakt med deg, Paul. I mellomtiden så kan du ta en, en kopp lun kaffe for å få dempet det sure oppstøtet du har, har gående akkurat nu. Og kvitt lunsj. Og litt fikk lunsj. Det var altså Paul Uvåg, korrekturleser her i Morgenbladet, som jeg snakket med der. Nu skal vi forflytte oss litt. Vi uh, sitter nu ned i kjelleren på uh, butikken Outland i, I Oslo. Uh, det er her folk samles for å spille Magic-kort, uh, eller lese tegneserier til, til vanlig. Uh, som du kanskje vet, så, så er ikke bare Outland en butik, men det er også et av de yndeste gjennom å henge for tegneserie, fantasy og science fiction fans. Jeg sitter sammen med Anne Lekke, en av samtidens mest spennende sci-fi-forfattere. Hun er den eneste forfatteren som har vunnet den prestisjetunge Hugo Nebula og Arthur C. Clarke-prisene for beste roman samtidig. Det gjorde hun i 2014 for hennes debut Ancillary Justice. Det er også en roman som på grund av sin radikale fremstilling av kjønn har blitt et slags hatobjekt for en gruppe konservative science fiction fans. Nu har akkurat den siste boka i, I Ancillary-trilogien kommet. Anne Lecky, thank you so, so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. Uh, I, I thought we could start by trying at least to, to explain the 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 setting of your, your ancillary trilogy the, the main characters goes by by many names um 
Uh, I, I think we'll call her Breg just to to make things simple. Uh, she's not your your run of the mill uh, protagonist. She is at least originally a self aware starship that also exists through her legions of of human bodies ancillaries that that, that she controls. So she's one mind, but but she still has the ability to be in many places at at once. H- how did that idea come come about? I'll be honest, I'm not 100% sure. That was one of the places where the idea for the book started. So uh, the idea of the characters who had many bodies and could be in many places at once uh, was kind of the beginning of that of that story. Uh, but then, of course, I had the idea, but how do you write a character like that, right? Because we don't experience life that way. We're in one place at one time, and a written story is one place at one time. Uh, so it took me a long time to figure out how to get that down on paper. Yeah, because yeah, it's very, very far away from our daily experiences of being trapped in in one body. Uh, exactly. Yeah. One of the things you you let your your character do is is uh, sing in concert with herself, uh, which is something that you know, doesn't really make sense for 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 us in in one one body. And I understand that you yourself is an avid avid singer. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, I uh, I sing sort of as a hobby. Uh, in America, there's a choral tradition called uh, shape note music. Uh, it's a it would take a while to explain, but basically, people get together on weekends and just sing out of particular books. They sight read the music, and it's a lot of fun. When uh, when I thought of a character with many bodies, and I said, "Well, I'm going to write this character." Uh, what would I do if I had 20 bodies, right? It's like, I could sing choral music all by myself instead of just singing along with the tape, right? Uh, and at first I was like, no, that's kind of that's cheesy. That's kind of corny, you know. Uh, I shouldn't do that. But the more I thought about it, I'm like, no, I would totally do that and somebody should totally do that. So I said, well, I'm going to lean into it then. And, and being in a choir or, or playing in a band or, or, or those kinds of experiences are, are in some ways almost the opposite of, of what your main character is experiencing because you're one being that sort of let yourself go into a bigger, bigger unity. Yes, yeah, and I'm not sure it's the same exact kind of experience, but I know people who do play in bands mm. and sing in choirs, there is that feeling of moving together with people uh, in a way that it, it's very different from, from just ordinary talking with someone or working with someone. There's a, a feeling of, of moving with other people, yeah. Yeah, because in some ways it's it's uh, you start behaving like one large being. Exactly. Uh, when you sing a, a piece of music where each of the parts don't really make sense alone, but then you put them together, and then you also get these sort of small nuances where you move somebody changes pace slightly and then suddenly everybody changes pace but nobody really started it either exactly yeah Yeah, and I think when you're the more you sing with a particular group of people or the more you play you start to sort of have a feel for how they're going to do that and pick up little cues and so I think it is kind of similar in some ways yeah your your setting is 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 quite complex and not only in the the character setting uh, with with these kind of characters that we we really don't meet in in our world uh but also the situation in the galaxy you described is this is thousands of years in, in in the future and you have a huge galactic empire but it's kind of different from your your standard uh, run of the mill evil galactic empire could you describe the empire and how it functions um so the empire they probably wouldn't call themselves an empire but they function as one basically uh is run by it's ruled by one person who 
is themselves multi-bodied. They have thousands of bodies. Um, but she, aside from the ships, everybody else in the Empire are just single-bodied human beings. One of the things with, uh, with your, your books that's uh, sort of uh, most often uh, pointed to is your use of, of gender. Um, in this galactic empire that we've, we've described, they, they don't uh, distinguish between genders, no matter what sort of genitalia you might have. Uh, you're called she. H- how come? Uh, well, back when I first had the idea for the story, I said very naively, wouldn't it be awesome to write a society that really genuinely didn't care about gender? Because that would be kind of cool and it's a great thing to imagine. Um, and immediately found that I had difficulty doing that. For obvious reasons. I mean, I live in a society where it's it's not inessential. It's the first thing you need to know about somebody. Um, and so I tried writing stories where I assigned genders to people and said he and she. And I was like, this is not doing what I want it to do. It's not because I ended up assigning characters to roles based on my assumptions about gender. Uh, and so it took me a while to finally say, what if I just use one pronoun for everybody and say that it's a translation convenience? They don't have these extra pronouns. Now, I know there are real-world Earth languages that, mm. that only use a uh, single pronoun. Um, I know Finnish is one of them. Uh, there's a number of them. Uh, and they're not, they're not, like, blind to gender. Yeah. But I still, I'm like, I want to use that to try and convey that, to use a single pronoun. And I ended up using she because if I had used he... Uh, nobody would have realized anything was going on. They, they would just think that they're only male characters in this story. Right. Yeah. It's so much a cultural default, yeah. and particularly in science fiction, it's so easy, especially in older novels, to read stories that have only men in them. So uh, I decided to use she. And then I said, well, that's going to make weird and awkward reading, uh, but I'm going to do it anyway. And the more I did it, the more I liked it. But I decided that would probably make it uh, difficult enough to read that maybe people wouldn't want to read it and that I wouldn't be able to sell the book. And I said to myself, well, but I'm going to do it anyway mm-hmm. because what's the point of spending all the time on the book if I'm not doing it the way I want to do it? But it yeah. does also, uh, since uh, she isn't the default, it gives um, a lot of feminine connotations to the Empire, for instance, that I, when I read it, I was, wasn't sure if I was making them. Uh, or if you had uh, those ideas, because in some ways, you know, if if we just talked about this empire with uh, with he, then um, it would it would seem that it has a lot of the the traits of an expansive sort of masculine empire. But then with the she, it suddenly has this feminine quality. But but did you think of it as a feminine society, or is is the, the pronoun the only thing that sort the of the pronoun's pretty much the only thing? But mm. I'm really one of the things I liked about using she was that it did give that implication. And while that wasn't necessarily what I meant, I thought that was kind of cool to look at it through another lens to say, well, why do we assume that's all masculine? It's not necessarily masculine. I know, uh, at least when I was younger, I would hear people say, oh, if women ran the world, everything would be so peaceful and it would be so much better. And I'm like, no, I don't really think so because women are people the same way that men are people and you give a person power and they tend to do the same kinds of things. Um, So I really did kind of enjoy that implication. Every now and then I'll find, uh, like on Twitter or something, I'll see a reader say, oh, I thought it was just all women in the book. Uh, Or see, it's all ruled by women. And I'm like, well, that's not what I meant, but it doesn't bother me that you came to that conclusion. So... Another thing that's sort of connected to the the, the idea of gender in your in your book, uh, or at least might be, is, is 
the cho uh, the the word ancillary it's um it's a difficult word to translate into into Norwegian it's means something that's sort of secondary in nature that supports something else and and originally at least if my my googling is uh, has been uh, correctly implemented uh, in old greek it literally means handmaiden or or somebody who sort of bustles around and tidies up but who herself is is never in the center is that a conscious choice for, of of using that word so so prominently yes absolutely um i've i've seen it translated somebody said oh it it literally means slave girl right uh and it's it's a feminine word um i didn't pick it necessarily because it was a feminine word that was kind of an accident but that idea of the 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 slave or the servant who's on the side making things happen but not the center was definitely on purpose somebody uh said to me at one point you've totally ruined the word ancillary for me somebody uh on a blog i was reading said oh i was job hunting and i came across a a, a you know a help wanted ad that was like come and join our ancillary facility <laughs> and they were like no i don't want that job that sounds kind of ominous with the, with the idea of the ancillary as sort of this body taken over by a larger power exactly which wasn't at all what the employer <laughs> meant right but now for a lot of people ancillary is really strongly associated with these books yeah but i was wondering because you worked for many years as a, as a waiter is that right mm-hmm. before you started writing and in some ways that is a, a job that that is an ancillary almost literally you're the one who makes uh, something work but you're not supposed to be visible uh, is there some sort of connection there or have you ex- probably there probably is a connection um when you work a job like that uh you start to notice all the things that you're not supposed to notice right uh you walk into a restaurant and you notice all the people clearing tables and you think about the dishwashers back in the kitchen and um when you don't do a job like that there's no reason for you to be aware of it and so uh to a fair extent when i'm writing a story i'm thinking about well what are what are the invisible parts of how this is working partly because i've done jobs like that yeah mm. Amongst many things, uh, you won the Hugo Awards, which is possibly the most prestigious sci-fi uh, uh, literary award. Um, the, the award was, was hijacked, or at least attempted to be hijacked, by two groups of, of conservative sci-fi fans, the sad and rabid puppies, uh, as they call themselves, who thought that their genre had been taken over by progressive and radical writers, and you being one of the, the prime examples. What are your thoughts on, on that event? Because it was a kind of... Uh, earth-shattering event in in sci-fi literature. It, it it caused kind of a kerfuffle, didn't it? It was yeah, that was an interesting year. Um I kind of feel like for one personally um you like to read what you like to read, right? Um I'm not down with criticizing people for the kinds of things they enjoy reading. I I grew up reading science fiction and people telling me science fiction, you know, that's not real literature, right? I know how that is and I'm not down with doing that to anybody else. Um So I don't have any problem with a group of fans saying we love these books. We really want to nominate them for awards. Uh that doesn't bother me. Cuz cuz the 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 sad and rabid puppies they sort of tried to take control over the the voting process. And that's the problem that bothers mm. me. It doesn't bother me that if 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 a group of fans say we love whatever this book is that isn't getting recognized critically. Okay, vote, you know, nominate it for a Hugo. What I didn't like was the slating was the list saying these are the things you should vote for if you are right a right thinking fan you know um that bugged me uh but in particular i really feel like uh the slate 
uh, particularly the Sad Puppy Slate, wasn't as much about promoting work that people really loved, that they thought wasn't getting recognized, as it was an attempt to, uh, to sort of crowbar in promotion and awards for the friends of the organizers of the slate. Um, that bothered me. Uh, didn't keep me up nights, uh, but it did. I did side eye that because mm. um, as soon as you start treating those awards as uh, promotional things, as things that you ought to get to advance your career, you kind of destroy the value of the award. At that point, why even bother getting it? Because yeah. nobody will respect it at all. Um, that bothered me. Um, the the rhetoric surrounding my book. You know, nine out of ten of the people saying the things that they were saying about the books hadn't even read the book mm. and will admit it in public. Oh, no, I haven't read it. But, but the reaction, what was your main reaction that you, you received from that camp? Oh, that, well, mostly it was uh, that the book was not a very good book, that the only reason anybody was praising it was because of the pronouns. Okay, so because it has a progressive uh, gender representation, right. that was why... Because that was trendy and that was why everybody okay. loved it, which is kind of ridiculous because it's mm. not the only book to have progressive uh, gender stuff. But, but how do you view yourself or, or the politics of your book? Because you are in a tradition of, of uh, feminist uh, science fiction writers, I mean, Atwood and Lejeune and, 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 and authors like that. Uh, do you see yourself as a part of a... a A, a, not a political movement, but of a political idea, or, or your works as also having that that aspect to them. So yeah, and that's a complicated that's a complicated question and a complicated issue. Um, on the one hand, I consider myself a feminist, and there's no question to me that my feminism comes through in my books. Um, I don't necessarily think of myself as, quote-unquote, a writer of feminist science fiction because I know, especially in the 70s, there was a whole lot of really fabulous feminist science fiction written with a very definite, uh, very definite feminist uh, agenda is a very loaded word, uh, but explicitly and consciously tackling feminist issues. Um, and I don't feel like that's what I was doing in these books. In these books, I felt like I was writing an old, an old school pew pew actiony space opera. That's what I was doing. But because of my particular political beliefs, certain parts of it come out the way mm -hmm. they do. Um, and to some extent, I felt like I love those. As I said, I love those old fashioned space opera things. But also, I had a lot of questions and discomfort with a lot of the traditional themes. I'm like, well, I love this, but why do I love this? Because it's kind of toxic, right? Um, So I feel like, yes, my politics are going to spill over into my book, but maybe not in the way necessarily that people assume. Uh, and I don't consider myself an explicitly political writer. On the other hand, I don't think it's possible to write a completely unpolitical book. I don't, you can't have a story that has no politics in it. So there's always going to be some kind of political assumptions or political message in a story. Det sa forfatter Anne Lekke. Nå på fredag den 19. februar, altså den dagen den här podcasten kommer ut, så kan du høre hur i samtale på Deikmanske hovedbibliotek i Oslo. På lørdag så signerer hun bøker på Outland. Liker du det du hører her på Morgenbladets podcast, så spred det gjerne videre til vennene dine. Musikken du hører i bakgrunnen nå er laget av... Og Oddne Meisfjord. Jeg heter Askel Matre Åsare. Vi høres.